Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. The Bowery Boys episode 237, Columbus Circle, a century of controversy. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Tom, we have done many a show on squares of New York City, on triangles, Mm -hmm. rectangles, maybe even an oval or two, Mm -hmm. but we have never done a show about a circle until now. Well, if that doesn't sell the listener on staying (laughs) tuned, I don't know what does, but it is true. We've never really tackled a circle, and today we're going to take a stroll around the history of the city's uh, most prominent, grandest circle of them all. A circle that I would say is underappreciated by most New Yorkers. Underappreciated, but partially because it's sort of a dysfunctional place, or has been for much of its history. And that will be the story that we tackle today. Just sort of the strange dynamics that have made up Columbus Circle and have sort of plagued it in a way. I mean, because Greg, when you think of Columbus Circle, what do you what do you even think of? Well, it's the nexus of three big neighborhoods, Midtown, Hell's Kitchen, and the Upper West Side, not to mention the entrance to Central Park, and it has a huge subway station underneath it. And if we take a quick trip back through time, we'll see that it was also, you know, it served as part of the theater district. It was home to many of the city's top restaurants and attractions. And for three decades in the 20th century, it was also home to one of Robert Moses's crowning achievements, the New York Coliseum, which was an exhibition hall that drew millions of visitors to New York every year. But we have to mention that it's also kind of been a hot mess throughout its history because uh, there have been periods of time when they didn't know quite what to do with it. uh, um, Or how to get around it. or, Or how to get around it. And all of this controversy has nothing to do with the statue that's currently in the middle that is itself embroiled in the controversy right now. And that would, of course, be the statue dedicated to Christopher Columbus in 1892, And we'll get into that story in a minute, but you're giving me a name for a title. Maybe we should be calling this episode Columbus Circle, a hot mess. (laughs) We'll leave that for the listener to decide. And hopefully by the end of the show, said listener will, will realize that actually Columbus Circle has come a long way. So hop aboard the roundabout as we discover the history of Columbus Circle.
Okay, Tom, we're talking about a physical space here in New York. Mm -hmm. Please situate the listener as to where Columbus Circle is on the grid. Right, because not everybody has been here. Not everybody can just see it, you know? Um, So I'm going to take you there. It's a prominent intersection in Midtown comprised of 59th Street here, otherwise known as Central Park South, Broadway, 8th Avenue, which is also north of the square Central Park West, and Central Park. So it's this major intersection. Remembering that, you know, on the grid plan, and that was part of the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, There were these prominent squares and uh, triangular spots and, in this case, circle that were created wherever Broadway intersected with an avenue. And in this case, Columbus Circle is where 8th Avenue hits Broadway. 7th Avenue and Broadway's Times Square, 6th and Broadway's Herald Square, 5th is Madison Square, 4th, or Park Avenue's Union Square. But the difference is, of course, with Columbus Circle is one large portion of its geography here is Central Park. Right, one quadrant. Yes. And as you work your way around, today you see uh, hotels, uh, you see the Time Warner Center, you see uh, theater spaces, residential apartment buildings. The Museum of Arts and Design. All of these things. And the circle itself surrounds a statue of Christopher Columbus surrounded by fountains. Columbus Circle is celebrating its 125th anniversary this year. Well, the circle is actually older than that, but the statue was placed here 125 years ago, which we'll get into in a second. What was here before it was a circle? Well, in the 17th century, uh, when the English ruled New York, Governor Nichols, who was the first English governor, granted about 1,300 acres of today's Upper West Side and Midtown from about 42nd Street to about 90th Street and west of today's Central Park to five different men who used it primarily for farming purposes. After the 1740s, the area around today's Columbus Circle was part of the Samarindike farm, home to Toynus Samarindike. Say that again. His first name was Toynus, T-E-U-N-I-S, and the family name Samarindike. It's it's a mouthful, but it's (laughs) S-O-M-A-R-I-N-D-Y-K-E, although there are various spellings you can find. So no old MacDonald is he. No, but he had a farm, and he lived at about today's 75th Street and Broadway. So things stayed pretty tranquil around here until the Commissioner's Plan of 1811 imposed the grid, um, which, of course, was not constructed overnight. And 8th Avenue was actually the first new street to be plowed up through here in 1816. And old Bloomingdale Road, this section of Bloomingdale Road, would become Broadway. Whatever became of Toynus? Well, just between us, <laughs> it looks like the farm stayed in the family until about 1829, when the following ad appeared in the New York Evening Post. The Court of Common Pleas will expose for sale at the Merchants' Exchange in Wall Street on the 2nd day of April, the house and farm late of Richard Samarindike, deceased, situated near the Five Mile Stone on the Bloomingdale Road, containing about three acres. The land is highly cultivated, with a considerable number of fruit and forest trees, and a garden abounding with raspberries, strawberries, and etc., Sounds like a heavenly little getaway, an idyllic location in New York, a bunch of orchards and gardens. Yeah, and I'm sure you can put this drawing on the blog, but I found this drawing of the Great Samarindike Farm in 1862, and you see... 
fenced off farmlands and you see Bloomingdale Road off to the left where Broadway is today and you see 8th Avenue and you can see behind it a very young Central Park with, oh, with, yeah. young, with young trees and people already moseying about inside because by this point the lower part of the, the park was already open for strollers. There's really not much difference between the developed farmland on one side of the road and then the young Central Park on the other side. Those were the days. Central Park, by the way, Greg, included a grand entrance at its southeast corner there at 59th Street and 8th Avenue. And Frederick Law Olmsted was planning for a big circle in his, in his park plans. The commissioner of the board of Central Park in 1869 stated that this, quote, open circular place was intended as a turnabout for horse-drawn carriages. And thus, over time, this area became referred to as the Grand Circle. So we have an intersection, we have a new park, we have the Grand Circle, great name, by the way. So when did Columbus arrive? Um, in about 1492. Well, I mean, I obviously just like walked into that one. I <laughs> sailed right into that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Didn't see it coming. But uh, the statue of Columbus. Yes, the monument was dedicated here in 1892 as part of a ceremony that was celebrating the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the, quote, New World. Interestingly, 100 years before, there had also been celebrations um, in 1792. So it wasn't new to celebrate it. But 100 years later, however, New York was a very different place because of the thousands of Italian immigrants now living here. And Christopher Columbus, or Christoph Columba, was, of course, Italian. I mean, look at this stat. Between 1880 and 1914, there were more than 4 million Italians who had immigrated to the United States, mostly from southern Italy. How did this specific statue get here in 1892? Did the, did the city fund it? No, the statue was paid for by the Italian-American uh, community living in New York City, and specifically the readers of Il Progresso newspaper, which was an Italian-American newspaper published in New York. On the day of its dedication, October 12th, 1892, about 10,000 people, uh, mostly Italian-Americans, gathered for the dedication of the monument, which had been produced by the Sicilian sculptor Gaetano Russo in Rome in that year. The monument is 76 feet tall, and it includes a a marble statue of Columbus standing high atop a 35-foot granite column with its heavy base anchored by a, a figure who's depicting the, quote, genius of discovery. And along the column, you'll find like, the bow and sterns of three ships, representing, of course, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. From the New York Times the next day, October 13th, 1892. Amid the cheering of thousands of patriotic sons of Italy, Spain, and America, the Columbus Monument was dedicated yesterday at 8th Avenue and 59th Street. The ceremonies attending the unveiling of the statue were of an imposing nature, and representatives of the United States, the state and city of New York, and of Italy, France, Spain, and Portugal participated in the exercises. Stands for the accommodation of 10,000 people had been built around the monument in the shape of an amphitheater. They were filled to overflowing, and the throng extended out along the streets radiating from the circle into Central Park. And later in the article, they mentioned that General James Grant Wilson, who was representing the governor and the mayor, gave an impromptu speech before the crowd, in which he stated, quote, 
we will ever fondly and carefully cherish this splendid gift, and may it ever stand as a monument of lasting friendship between Italy and the United States. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So it seems to me that this Columbus statue, even at this time, has two different meanings to people, right? That it has a sort of a larger meaning that they're, they're doing this for this big anniversary, just to celebrate this important date in history. And mm-hmm. keep in mind, the late 19th century, we didn't have like a lot of dates to celebrate in America. The country was a little bit over 100 years old. So we made the most of every date available to us. <laughs> exactly. But then secondly, it meant something very specific to an immigrant group that was just arriving in these large numbers. And the amazing thing about New York in another kind of context are the dozens of statues that are located throughout Manhattan and all of the boroughs that are statues that are very important to immigrant communities. Um, you'll find them all over the place and all over the parks, especially in Central Park. Well, there's even another statue of Christopher Columbus in Central Park, Mm -hmm. uh, just north of 66th Street, dedicated the same year in 1892. And there are more Italian sculptures as you make your way north along Broadway. There's Dante at Lincoln Square and there's Verdi up at Verdi Square at 72nd Street. And I take your point about the Italian-American community, and in fact, it was these people, you know, who had raised the $25,000 to pay for the statue. And it's, it's also interesting that it was a newspaper publisher who was pushing to raise the funds. Um, in this case, Carlo Barsotti, who was the publisher of Il Progresso Italo-Americano. And we're about to get to another big fundraiser here in just a couple minutes. So now with Columbus here, the Grand Circle, I guess, eventually takes on the name of Columbus Circle. Yes, it would begin to be referred to as Columbus Circle over the years. Especially in 1904, when the subway station below Columbus Circle officially opened. Right, and they, that was a massive building project because they had to get underneath, you know, this, this enormous and very heavy monument to dig those tunnels. And they would have to dig again in the 1920s and 1930s when they were constructing the 8th Avenue subway line, which opened in 1932. So this circle was originally for horse carriages, but now that we're entering the 20th century here, we now have streetcars and soon automobiles. So how do they account for, for these new changes? Well, initially, pretty poorly. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was kind of a ring of chaos. Uh, <laughs> and if you look at early photos and read descriptions of the Grand Circle, it, this is sort of the, the, the beginning of the hot mess period. Mm-hmm. Because you had all this traffic. You had the streetcars coming down Broadway, right? And that would have to make their way around uh, that monument and continue heading down Broadway. You had streetcars on 59th Street. In 1900, you had l- most of the carriages were being pulled by horses, but you started to see more and more automobiles creep into the New York street scene. Yeah, I just can't imagine having those zip around Columbus Circle trying to dodge pedestrians, frightened horses. Right. Well, and you just said zip around Columbus Circle, okay? Up until 1900, even 1903, people got to Columbus Circle in, say, their horse-drawn carriage or their automobile and it was up to them how to proceed, okay? Oh, no. Imagine you're heading along Central Park South, and you're heading toward the monument, the Columbus Circle in front of you, and you want to turn left to go down Broadway. Well, what do you do? Today, you have to go all the way around. But back then, 
you could just immediately turn left in front of oncoming traffic, uh, streetcars in your way. You know, there really were no rules. And that was the thing. In New York in about 1900, there were just no rules of the street. There was no traffic enforcement. There were no traffic cops who were going around telling, you know, giving tickets to carriages. It didn't happen. Well, it took a New York City-born businessman to apply a little bit of order to this chaos. And his name was William Phelps Eno. He's often referred to today as the father of traffic control because he pushed the city in 1902 to establish a manager of street traffic. The Times published an amazing article in 1902 that showed off some of his proposed traffic regulations. It's really funny to read now because it also incorporates rules both for horse-drawn carriages and for automobiles because they were all, you know, mixed Mm -hmm. on the street. And there are diagrams that are showing the right way to make turns, the wrong way to make turns. And and these proposals were taken seriously by the city. And he actually wrote in 1903 the city's first traffic code, giving some rules to the road. That same year, 1903, the city approached Eno to do something about Columbus Circle because it was such a mess and there were accidents every day. Well, he proposed that they convert it into a traffic circle, which was his idea. Um, But the concept was that you would always keep to your right at a circle. And once you enter the circle, you would have the priority. This would be put into use in 1905 and would become the world's first traffic circle. In the world? In the world. This is Eno's invention. It happened right here. It proved so successful that it would be adopted two years later in Paris for the Ring Around the Arc de Triomphe. Which is another hot mess of an intersection. So Europe stole it from us? No, they approached Eno. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and London would as well at Piccadilly Circus. So Eno's best. And we should probably do a show just on Eno because he, he's also credited with creating a few other indispensable pieces of traffic control. Among them, the stop sign, the crosswalk, and maybe even the one-way street. How do you invent a one-way street? Well, we won't, we won't go down that path right now. Well, no surprise that with these big intersections in New York, you know, what do they have in common? Union Square, Madison Square, Herald Square, Times Square. Well, they're all squares in name. Kind of. But they were also at one point the center of the theatrical district. And so for a time, Columbus Circle attempted to bring the theatrical world up to this corner of New York. It has sometimes been called the North Pole of the Broadway theatrical world uh, because there were a few significant theaters up here. I mean, Lincoln Center, which is a few blocks north of here, kind of like keeps the legacy alive Mm -hmm. of theater um, in the Upper West Side here. But for a time, it was like the northern extension Now, the biggest theater, the most notable theater, was called The Majestic. Its address was 5 Columbus Circle between 58th and 59th Street on the southern portion of where the Time Warner Center is today. Okay. Now, The Majestic is best known for two productions. Back in January 1903, even before the subway was open, came the stage adaptation of L. Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz. Oh. I mean, the, I mean, keep in mind, the book had just been written three years before this. So it's like the Harry Potter of its day. <laughs> <laughs> But Dorothy Gale, she was the original cursed child. (laughs) Yes. And then after The Wizard of Oz, it was such a big hit that they wanted to do kind of another type of fantastical sort of stage show. And so then the same creators came up with Babes in Toyland. So both of them made their debut right here at the Majestic Theater. 
But of course, the real show in the circle is going on in the northeast section. Of course, the entrance to Central Park. That's where at this time, it's why most people are coming here. They're entering through this gate. Literally called the Merchant's Gate. Kind of up until this point, kind of a, a kind of a casual gate. Like it says, a, it, it doesn't have a lot of doesn't have a lot of fanfare here until 1913, when they decided to give the entrance the grandiosity that it deserved with the construction of the main monument. That's main like the state or like the battleship. It's the battleship, right? I mean, this glorious piece of civic artwork that honored the lives of American soldiers who perished on the USS Maine, which was a ship that exploded in Havana, Cuba on February 15th, 1898. This was a terrible tragedy that unfortunately inspired an entire war. The, the Spanish-American War. Right. At the end of the 19th century, it was regrettably... The newspapers that really aggressively drummed up support for this war to help sell newspapers. This is often seen as the birth of yellow journalism because there was so much propaganda and fabrications and half-truths published by newspapers during this time, including the two big publishers of the day, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst, who operated his newspaper empire just a block away. And then decided that we needed a main monument. So he basically is the one that is spearheading, or at least greatly encouraging all Americans to start raising funds to build a respectful monument to those who died on the main. So once again, we have a newspaper publisher pushing for the construction of a monument. Well, it took over a dozen years to finally settle on a design, uh, which they did so by the famed Harold Van Buren McGonagall, who was the king of memorials in America at this time, and was associated with Calvert Fox and McKim Meadon White. So he was the guy you went to mm-hmm. to make these kind when of things. When you needed a main monument. The statue, it's magnificent. It's pretentious. It's a little weird. You have this large pylon that's topped with the goddess Columbia is her name, mm-hmm. and riding on a seashell pulled by three seahorses, or or rather what they call hippocampi. Sounds fancy. On the side is a plaque that says, the USS Maine destroyed in Havana Harbor, February 15th, 1898. This tablet is cast from metal recovered from the USS Maine. So portions of the sunken tragic ship are here in the monument. Wow, that's that's really surprising. I didn't know that they did something that to me seems so modern, you know, recycling part of the tragedy in the monument. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. sort of amazing. It must have been quite a quite a draw. Maybe, but not for the reasons that you think. It was a very political statement, this this monument. It was tied up into a, in a lot of the local and regional politics of the day. On top of it, many in the artistic community thought it was an eyesore completely lost in a bunch of vague theatrical symbolism that no one understood. A quote from the New York Sun from the founder of the Association of American Painters and Sculptors said, quote, This monument is a disgrace to the city. It is a misfit and ruins the beautiful park entrance. And what has it to do with the main? Unless someone told us that it was a main memorial monument, we would never know it from the design. Architecturally and constructively, the whole thing is cheap and bad. Snap, man. 
Fortunately, though, most people probably weren't noticing the main monument by the early 1910s into the 1920s. Why? They were just rushing into the park? (laughs) They were rushing around the park to get to what was now a hot destination for nightclubs and restaurants. Columbus Circle became a place where you wanted to spend late nights. And we hinted at this scene of Columbus Circle in our Texas Guinan show. Right, because her Cafe Royale was right there on 58th Street, right, just in the middle of the action. And that was in the 1920s. Before that, perhaps the most famous nightclub in the neighborhood was called Weber's Cafe. And it was at 58th and 8th Avenue on what would be the south side of the Columbus statue. Raisinweber's. Raisinweber's. There's a W in there. There's a W in there, but yeah, it's, a, you but know, it's, it's German. Yeah, it's German. So, so why not? <laughs> sure. It was called the coolest dancing room in the city, which oh, is cool. like, which is a no small feat for New York at the beginning of the 20th century. It had a lots of small feet. Lots of big feet. Uh, It had a dozen dining rooms, employed more than 1,000 people, and seated 5,000 diners at one time. It was massive. It was enormous. But what it's known for are some of the performers that came through here. In 1917, the original Dixieland jazz band, who were actually a white musical ensemble from the South, but they played jazz for these largely white audiences. During this tenure, when they were performing at the cafe, they then went and recorded the very first jazz record in New York, Livery Stable Blues. That is so interesting, given that today Lincoln Center operates, you know, jazz at Lincoln Center here in in the same spot. Yeah, it's a hundred years of jazz that are coursing around this circle here. But the performer that was best known for her performances here was the vaudeville chanteuse Sophie Tucker. She was a vibrant body performer. Her escapades upstairs at Raisin Vapors would be to sell out crowds in what was originally called the 400 Room. but And she had these nights called the Bohemian Nights at the 400 Room. They were so famous. That, Sounds body. Yeah, that they actually just call, ended up calling it the Sophie Tucker Room because she was just so synonymous with this performance space. Many scholars even credit Sophie Tucker, and this space as popularizing the form of cabaret in the United States. So in a way, the birth of the cabaret scene is Mm -hmm. also taking place here. And this is happening in the 19-teens. Yes, this is the late 1910s, 1917, 18, 19, going into Prohibition. Yeah, 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 of course. Now, this isn't the only party in Columbus Circle. There's Faust's, which was a a restaurant that had four floors and famous for a 12-piece banjo orchestra. Then you had the restaurant Child's Columbus Circle at 300 West 59th Street on the southwest corner that was known especially especially for very rowdy parties. One description of such a party from 1919 from the Washington Herald, quote, There were fights galore at Child's. I saw men in uniform battling in one end of the room while two women in evening gowns were pulling hair in another. (laughs) Batter cakes were hurled with careless abandon in the same manner as carnival confetti. Drunken women sang and pounded their plates on the marble top tables while the men shouted and kissed their companions. <laughs> wow, it sounds, it sounds like a nonstop party around there. Except that that was 1919. 
So the party did indeed. It did indeed stop. With prohibition, most of these places closed down, effectively killing the kind of party atmosphere of the neighborhood. One more extraordinary detail about Columbus Circle that I'd like to add is in the 1930s, at the foot of the Christopher Columbus statue, this was known as a place for speakers. Just any old soul, anyone who had something to say, could get a literal soapbox. Sit uh, back when they had soapboxes. They had soapboxes. Stand in front of Columbus Circle, and basically give impromptu lectures, witnesses, harbingers. It was all sorts of speakers could come here. It was a cacophony. Under the headline in the New York Times, "Iron Lungs on Columbus Circle," quote: Each specific corner of the circle has been taken through an invisible lease. The speakers generally deliver their spiel and then ask for questions from the crowd. Included on a list of nightly speakers: atheists, American workers' parties, open-air church services, communists, Irish workers, the man whose pamphlet will cure everything, <laughs> National Independent Party, a fascist organization, the Hobo King, the man who knows all about sex, Salvation Army, and astrologers. <laughs> so you could get <laughs> sounds like a vaudeville show. <laughs> so you could get all of that here at the wow. foot of the of the Columbus statue in the 1930s. The character of this neighborhood in the 1930s would begin to change as a march of unusual architectural structures would now arrive in Columbus Circle. We'll get to the story of those buildings and the controversies that they brought to Columbus Circle after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada 
where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. All right, so I got us up to past the Great Depression before the break. What's happening in Columbus Circle here in the mid-century? Well, the 1950s saw some changes to the circle that I find really interesting because you just saw me geek out talking about Eno and his traffic (laughs) regulations. Mm -hmm. But back to traffic patterns, they sort of discarded the traffic circle in the 1950s because it was also producing... A fair share of accidents, and because when when traffic was really heavy, the 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 circle just kind of like froze. You know, became very slow moving. So in 1950, the, the city spent about a hundred thousand dollars on revamping the circle. They installed iron fences inside the plaza to help control traffic and also to block pedestrians to prevent them from darting across the, across the plaza. They added a pedestrian island around the monument, and trees were planted. Around this time, the city even banned street corner orators, quote-unquote. So they cleaned up the circle by getting rid of the soapboxes. <laughs> Basically. And it's funny to read the newspaper coverage of the time, because everybody's very upbeat about the way that Columbus Circle is being modernized. Nobody more upbeat than New York City's master builder himself, Robert Moses. Well, he's at the prime of his powers right now in the 1950s, and here is an area ripe for Robert Moses-style development. Right, because he was deep in his slum clearance mode. He was sweeping away blocks of tenements and shops, entire neighborhoods, and, and replacing them throughout the city, you know, with housing projects, cultural centers like Lincoln Center, not far away, uh, highways, tunnels, bridges, whatever. The west side of Columbus Circle had always irked him because there was something slummy about it. These old theaters and the shops, the kind of low-rise stuff, they had kind of gone downhill. They didn't represent to him uh, the new modern American city. And at the same time, it irked him that New York didn't have an adequate convention center. Right. They would have mostly been held in either like hotels mm-hmm. or maybe even down at Madison Square Garden. Which was in Hell's Kitchen mm-hmm. at the time. Or in armories. But it, but it sounds like many of them were actually held at the Grand Central Palace, which was the hotel um, attached to Grand Central Station. But these spaces were awkward and they were small. He thought that a, a brand new exhibition space, convention hall, would be one of the keys to helping New York thrive as a modern city. So his plan was to clear out all the buildings on the two blocks from 58th Street up to 60th and from Columbus Circle over to 9th Avenue. He would then close off 59th Street. Remember, that went, that was a through street. And there on those two blocks, he would build a world-class convention center, which he would call 
the New York Coliseum. So he would erase a city street, and it's still not there today. It's right. still gone to build what would become New York's mid-century convention center, the main hall. Design by architect Leon and Lionel Levy in in the international style. Think about you know the United Nations here. Um, which consisted of a convention hall and a 26-story office tower. Not just any convention hall. It was a, it was a massive, massive space with 300,000 square feet of exhibition space on four levels. In large enough spaces, in fact, to display airplanes, you know. There, there were giant banks of escalators and freight elevators, and it could accommodate thousands of people at once. Everything from postage stamp conventions to automobile expositions. Right, because expos, by the way, were going to other cities. You know, New York needed to build something big enough to accommodate multiple Mm -hmm. expositions at the same Mm -hmm. time. Because while millions of people were still coming every year, uh, by by the 1950s, it had kind of stagnated. So how did the architectural plans work for this building? Well, the aesthetics um, were not universally beloved, shall we say. <laughs> I'm surprised that a Robert Moses structure would not be beloved by certain architectural <laughs> corners of the world. Well, you remember it, right? I mean, you yeah. remember the look of this thing. It was an enormous, white, futuristic slab of a convention center, right? And uh, a couple years before it was open, right before they started building it, in fact... Moses was roasted at a dinner in a in a rather awkward way. It must have been an incredibly wow. awkward dinner. <laughs> the 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 event was the New York chapter of American Institute of Architects. They were having their annual meeting here in New York, and the head of the organization in New York, Alfred Frankfurter, who was the editor of Art News, basically let him have it. And Moses was was there. Um, And he got to defend himself. But with Moses there, Frankfurter called the design pedestrian. And and according to an article in the Times of of the event, quote, complained of the completely dictatorial way in which Mr. Moses is imposing this design upon the public without anyone getting in a word of dissent. Did Moses take that sitting down? Oh, of course not. He snapped back at him, quote, I am not going to get mad. We are going right ahead and build the Colosseum. You see, Moses thought that that they, the architects, were actually being too radical in all of their new ideas for how public buildings should look. He said that architects must, quote, depend on public officials to save their profession from egotists, publicity seekers, iconoclasts, and crackpots. If public building, too, goes haywire, it's all over, is what Moses said. So the architectural controversy continues here uh, through through the vestige of the Colosseum. Right, and that plan would go into order and construction would move forward. It would take about two years to construct and cost $35 million. And when it opened on April 28th, 1956, to great fanfare, it was the largest building of its kind in the world. And for that opening, it hosted the New York International Auto Show, an international stamp show, and the National Photography Show. And and thousands of people came just to enter the space, just to get in there and see what it was all about. In an article in the Times the same day, the day after it opened, I mean, the Times, I keep quoting here, but the Times ran like five or six articles about the opening of the Coliseum because it was that important. 
Um, but in one article, the author writes, quote, although there is little razzle-dazzle about the building itself, it has been deliberately kept neutral in decoration and lighting of the exhibition areas so that the displays themselves will stand out. So I, I kind of feel like there was some... There were some apologists who were already mm. <laughs> making excuses for the fact that this was a big, kind of user-unfriendly, giant slab mm-hmm. of a building. But yet, at the same time, it was very functional. So now, the Coliseum is a big chunk of Columbus Circle. It's almost like the, you know, like the west side going to the south side. That must have just changed the whole direction and feel of the neighborhood. New bars and restaurants and hotels were actually built around Columbus Circle in order to accommodate the new crowds who were coming to this part of Midtown to be close to the convention center because they were attending something there. And a couple skyscrapers even arrived to the neighborhood, drawn here because of the Coliseum. Well, there's that funny little piece of land, right, that's directly across from the Columbus Monument to the south. And on that piece of land in 1874 uh, was built the Grand Circle Hotel, later called the Oriental Hotel. And, you know, that changed hands for many decades, turned into offices. But in 1960, it was demolished in order to construct the Gallery of Modern Art, which opened in 1964. Well, that's not a museum you hear much about. The Gallery of Modern Art... This was a project that was funded by Huntington Hartford, who was an heir to the A&P grocery fortune. Hartford was on a mission to showcase the modern art that he liked and collected, the modern art that was different from the mostly abstract art that was being featured down at the Museum of Modern Art. So he thought that the city needed another modern art museum. To show another aspect of modern art. That's right. And so he hired Edward Durrell Stone, who constructed a building that many considered to be um, a modernist monstrosity. (laughs) (laughs) A brutalist nightmare. Uh, Well, I think brutalists would like it. (laughs) (laughs) A brutalist dream. (laughs) A brutalist dream. It was a giant white windowless slab of a building ringed near its top with with open arches, uh, which held inside a restaurant with park views. And and it went down to a base of, of little stick legs. It was savaged by many architectural critics, including, of course, Ada Louise Huxtable in the Times, who said that it looked like a, quote, Venetian palazzo on lollipops. <laughs> and because of this, the building would often be called the lollipop building. So how long did this gallery stay open here in Columbus Circle? Not very long. Um, as, a, as an actual art gallery, it had issues. It was a funny little space and, you know, not easy to present artwork in. It only stayed open for about five years and then closed down. It would ultimately be gifted to the city, which would house their their Department of Cultural Affairs from inside the building. And meanwhile, on the northern side of Columbus Circle, straight across from this gallery, in the late 60s, Gulf and Western Industries built an enormous office tower on that northern parcel of land where the Samarindike farm used to stand. <laughs> Amazing. This this tower, which was designed by Thomas Stanley, was constructed in 1969. And personally, I I don't think it's a real looker of a building. <laughs> so so you have this like uninteresting skyscraper. 
next to the Colosseum, mm-hmm. uh, big which, slab, big slab, next to this uh, brutalish, garish nightmare on the south end of Columbus Circle. Then, of course, you have let's not forget the main monument and all the original criticisms that were stacked against that. Right? So controversy, Greg, <laughs> swirling around Christoph Colombo. You know, I just want to drop in really quickly that in 1978, the film Eyes of Laura Mars came out, and the most famous <laughs> scene is in Columbus Circle involving like a fashion shoot with models who are pulling their hair out perhaps in an homage to the child's restaurant of the 1910s with a burning car behind them okay so this to me is indicative of what columbus circle has become <laughs> into the 1980s architectural critic herbert mushamp quote it is no wonder that columbus circle is a mess for it is a meeting point of extraordinary urban pressures, a subway hub, a portal not only to Central Park but to the Upper West Side. Stylistically chaotic, Columbus Circle is a monument to New York's inability to bring distinction or even sanity to its most eminent locations. <laughs> Criticism from the early 80s that would just really annoy Robert yeah. Moses. Well, they were all very anti-Moses by the 1980s. Developers were looking at Midtown, looking for new ways to make it a more modern city by this time. We're, in the 1980s, we're talking the era of Worldwide Plaza, of you know the Lipstick Building. We were looking for glassy, glossy towers that you could plant in places. And with the opening of the Javits Center on the far west side, that sealed the fate of the Coliseum. Uh, and it, it closed after a menswear show in 1986, but it was not demolished for 14 years. They wouldn't demolish it until 2000? What took them so long? Didn't they have any ideas? This spot of real estate became highly valued and I'd say additionally cursed. (laughs) As early as 1986, there were plans to build a 130-story building on this spot. It would have been the tallest building in the world. 130 stories? Yeah. Who would who would build a 130-story building right here? Well, it was proposed by a builder named Donald Trump. This idea was discarded, but he will pop into the story in a major way in just a second. A new proposal the following year by real estate mogul Mortimer Zuckerman proposed two towers, one that was 72 stories, the other one 52 stories. Immediately... The city was criticized for selling this very valuable area that was very central to New York, literally next to Central Park, selling it to the highest bidder without any regard to the aesthetics or, you know, or use. Yeah, or, or the use. More importantly, it was the community itself that was angered by this. The idea of having such a tall building casting a disruptive shadow onto the southwest side of Central Park. Well, in the fall of 1987, 30 years ago this year, hundreds of protesters on cue entered Central Park around the area where the shadow would have been cast at around 1.30 in the afternoon. And at that precise moment, they all opened black umbrellas. Ooh. So, uh, you know, where the shadow would have fallen. This, oh, amazing. This created a quite a press opportunity, as you can imagine. The project was was demonized and got an incredibly bad rap. Even Robert Caro, the biographer of Robert Moses, author of The Power Broker, even he chimed in saying, quote, Over the last few years, New York has been transformed into a different city and no one has paid attention. Well, all of a sudden, people have awakened to what's happening. 
So whatever happened to the plans for this enormous skyscraper? Well, there were there was so much pressure that the principal tenant who would have moved into the building, uh, a Wall Street investment firm, Solomon Brothers, they pulled out of the whole project. Then the state Supreme Court nullified the, the entire sale to Zuckerman, saying that the city had manipulated zoning rules to obtain the maximum sale price for the land. And meanwhile, the Coliseum is still standing there. It's still, it's still there, and now it's no longer being used. It's just empty. There would be a, occasional concerts and things inside of it, but it's not in regular use. Now, let me bring Trump back into the picture, because he, he would get a consolation prize here in Columbus Circle. For in 1994, he announced plans to renovate the Gulf and Western building. It was refaced, you know, to make it more of a Trumpian style kind of glass building mm-hmm. and with a, with a new design by Philip Johnson. Now it was the Trump International Hotel and Tower, a building covered in glass. With lots of gold. <laughs> with lots of gold. He also brought a intriguing new object to Columbus Circle, a 30-foot globe of the world that sits right in front of there. It's there to this day. Oh, that was a modern addition. That's a modern... Yeah, it was. It was it's an homage to the Unisphere out in Flushing Meadows that was installed as part of the World's Fair of 1964. Originally, the globe was to have the words Trump International on in massive lettering, but he got into a huge fight with the city planning department. I found an article written by the great David Dunlap, and uh, in his article, he details that the planning department, uh, they, you know, they, they put out a report that said, quote, we believe that the scale of the globe is so enormous, it would detract from the overall streetscape plan we are designing for the circle. So there is no lettering on the globe. Okay, so we're fighting over letters on a globe, <laughs> this, but this whole time, the Coliseum is still sitting over yeah. on the western side of Columbus Circle. And tr- Trump has his eyes on that. He wants to develop another property there. He wants to basically... Well, it's you know, prime real estate. I mean, it's almost like he wants to turn it into Trump's Columbus Circle here. Uh, well, during the 1990s, the Rudy Giuliani administration kind of broke through finally um, by tying this real estate to a specific idea. A very intriguing way, I think, to get this done. They would agree to accept bids for redevelopment of the Coliseum space if those plans included a new performance space for Lincoln Center devoted to jazz music. The winning bid would only be approved if a theater was incorporated into their idea. Interesting. As a result, the winning design, of course, then went to a developer whose main tenant would be Time Warner, which would bring a media company back to Columbus Circle in a way that William Randolph Hearst might have only dreamt of. The Time Warner Center, which was constructed between the year 2000 and 2003, would include the CNN studios, the home of Anderson Cooper's show would be there. Of course, there's all that shopping, lots of high-end shopping. And there's down in the basement, there's a great Whole Foods. And it also includes some of New York's ritziest, most high-end restaurants, like Per Se and Masa. I mean, I've never been to those, but I can't. We've heard. We've We've heard heard, they're up there. And, of course, Jazz at Lincoln Center is there. And its inclusion was necessary to all the plans that were developed. To seal the deal. Right. 
Whatever happened to number two Columbus Circle, that gallery of modern art? Mr. Dural Stone's big right. like, monolith. Um, well, it got a radical makeover when the Museum of Arts and Design moved in. It debuted uh, in September of 2008. It was redesigned by architect Brad Klopfel. And it's uh, the look of the building. It's a touch more friendly. You know, it actually has windows facing into the circle. What a novel idea. Windows facing into this like extraordinary vista. Columbus himself even got a facelift by this time. The, or rather, the plaza did in 2005 with these nice new Bellagio fountains in the middle of it. And it got a whole new re- uh, redo. Making it much more pedestrian friendly. You mm-hmm. can, for example, get to that pedestrian plaza without risking your life. And finally, in 2016, right underneath everything that we've talked about, there is a trendy new food hall underneath Columbus Circle called Turnstile, where you can pick up a crepe or grilled cheese on your lunch break. So in many ways, it's the most functional that it's been for decades, perhaps ever. Sure, I'll take that point. But I think maybe for a second we should address the elephant in the room, the elephant in the circle. The explorer in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Because we've talked about all the controversies encircling the circle. But what about, of course, the controversy encircling Columbus himself? There are big conversations going on right now about the uh, what statues mean and what these memorials, what these monuments mean, how they reflect upon the times in which they were originally constructed and erected and how those reflect on our own lives now. And so for many, these, these monuments are not appropriate anymore. And that includes monuments of Christopher Columbus, because of course, on top of, quote, discovering America, he was also responsible for the torture and slaughter of indigenous people throughout the region. And let it be known that Greg did use air quotes there when he was saying discovering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) America. So yes, this is this is a conversation that's happening right now. And the debate continues. Mayor de Blasio is slated to make a decision about the future of the Columbus statue. This continues to be a very hot topic. I don't know what, where this is going to eventually end up. I'm not even sure what I think about this or where I am going to end up personally. But one thing that I think is just extraordinary and that I think needs to be done that is, if Columbus will remain in Columbus Circle, there needs to be more of a historical context, whether it be some sort of presentation or a plaque at the foot Where there's plenty of room for such a thing. Oh, there's plenty of room. And in fact, the original inscription on the base of the statue, which actually is the cause for a little bit of head scratching and consternation today, for it mentions that to the world he gave a world, you know? Well, if you're keeping all of that, why not also add a little bit of historical context and explain to people who are viewing this what they're even looking at, why it happened in the first place, and mention perhaps that this monument was also a display of friendship between the Italian people and the American people. For more information and for many images of Columbus Circle throughout the year, visit our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com. In addition, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. We'd also like to thank our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BoweryBoys. We have a special treat uh, for the patrons for this week's bonus episode that you'll receive in your podcast feed. 
In addition, check out my spinoff podcast, The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. The next episode will be about the very first American cookbook. (sighs) Well, that should whet our appetites. (laughs) So thank you very much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.